And we are live, folks. And once again, um, I guess it's time to put a trouble ticket in with StreamYard. Uh, failure to initiate live feed on Twitter. As far as I know, I haven't been smacked down or slapped around in any way by Elon, uh, the new t- Twitter regime. Uh, but for about the last week and a half, uh, live feeds over to Twitter haven't worked. I tried completely knocking that down and restarting it. So if you're listening to somewhere else and you usually listen to the lives on Twitter, there's what happened. Um, I like the alternative platforms, but honest to God, the most reliable platforms we have are YouTube and Twitch as far as making sure you get to see the streams. Anyway, before we get started, you'll notice down there in the video screen, it says we will never contact you for any personal information. Um, private chat, et cetera, in the video comments, just because you see my logo does not mean it's me. We're not talking about Bitcoin today, so it'll probably be less uh, likely to happen, but it still happens all the time. And I'm sure even though we're talking about gardens and planning for spring and going into winter and all that stuff today, we'll get some porn spammers somewhere near the end in the live chat because, well, I don't know, we just attract them. So what are we talking about today? Yeah, we are talking about Well, we're talking about heading into winter and already planning for spring. I think that this is something that many of us tend to do. We we get into a point in our lives where like we start to to think about like the next time around, what would I do different? And we start I think as we get older and a little wiser and we plan a little bit more methodically, we start thinking about that earlier and earlier in the year. So I used to think about spring planting and spring gardens in February, where you're already a little bit behind the curve because you need to be getting plants in the ground in March a lot of times, or even earlier sometimes. Um, Then it came into like, well, you know, December and Christmas. And now I, I start thinking about this stuff right about now, going into the Thanksgiving time of year. And at the beginning here, I want to say a little bit about that and this time of year. And uh, this is uh, a really great time of year for me, personally. I see my family, and I mean all the members of my family that I ever see anyway, I see them more in the next six weeks, actually starting last week, from this time all the way to the end of the year. I see them more in that six-week period than I see them in the rest of the year combined, especially together. And that's mostly my wife's extended family that I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, and, and it really, um, it, it really is something that is, I think, good for me as a reboot. And I want to let you guys know that kind of some things that make the whole schedule of the show change a bit start right about now. This week being Thanksgiving week, the next two days will be new episodes, but they'll really be rewinds. So what I mean by that is tomorrow we will play the episode I did years ago with Chef Keith Snow on cooking for Thanksgiving. And we will do that uh, because if we do it on Tuesday, you'll actually have time to put into practice the things that he tells you about if you've never heard it before. And it'll be a good refresher if you haven't. And then Wednesday we'll do the Thanksgiving special because Thanksgiving, there is no podcast. So uh, that worked out well this week. I also had like computer suicide, like in pairs, like they went out together. In the last week and a half, the day before the workshop started, my MacBook shit the bed and I had to replace it with a new MacBook. That will be repairable, but I didn't have time to go without that machine going into streaming the the presentations and all. And then Friday, my PC, my old workhorse antique PC 
uh, crapped out on me. And I don't know if that one's going to be fixable yet. So kind of works out that I have this week to like deal with that transition and moving some things to a new machine and stuff like that. Got back up. So not a problem. Yeah. Computer murder, suicide. Tom's right. Um, the, uh, the MacBook attempted suicide and murdered the PC. I, that's the way I'm going to go with it. Um, anyway, if you have, uh, questions or comments today, all caps is the way to go. I will just as an aside answer this one right here. There was a problem says, are you ready to debate flat on a fair and neutral platform yet? No, because Flat Earth is stupid and you're stupid and I, I just don't have time for your nonsense anymore. I had a guy that wanted to do it. We had a third party moderator set everything up. I put together my eight minute intro. I did everything uh, that I could to have made it a fair and interesting debate. And a week before the debate, he ran away like a little bitch with his tail between his legs. And I don't have time to deal with you absolutely insane people anymore. If you want to debate somebody about Flat Earth, go talk to somebody that cares about your piddly little bullshit. Anyway, moving on. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today before we get into today's episode. And uh, sponsor day number one today is going to be me. Yep, me sponsoring myself, sort of. The TSP Swag Shop has some really cool gear, like this hat that I'm wearing. Now, I'll, I'll admit, the main reason I'm wearing this hat today is because my hair really needs to be cut. And I didn't get it cut before the workshop. And I don't know if I'm going to get it done this week. So it, it looks really bad. So I, I, I threw the cap on. But it is a cool revolution as you cap. We have some new hoodies in the swag shop, including zip-up hoodies. I don't know about you guys. I'm much more a zip-up hoodie guy than I am a pullover hoodie guy. I like the whole layers thing. And I like being able to like be in between by unzipping it and what have you. So we have some cool new hoodies. We've got a bunch of really cool stuff in the swag shop. Uh, the mugs and tumblers, people have really been – that's kind of been our best sellers have been uh, the two tumblers and the, uh, the, the coffee cup. Uh, I'm a big fan of the coffee cup. Of course, I had a big influence on the design of it, so you, you might imagine that I, I might like it. We have all of our hats, stuff like that. Uh, I just had a, a lady email me today. Her husband asked for some stuff from the swag shop, and he's an MSB member, and she doesn't know how the MSB works, so I sent her uh, the MSB member discount. So on that, you know, MSB members do get 10% off all items, and uh, if you're having your spouse – um, you know, buy you something for your Christmas present from the gear shop, uh, just have them email me and I'll, I'll hook them up with uh, the discount code, assuming you're actually a member. Anyway, uh, next up today, Paul Wheaton. Uh, and I wanted to bring this one back around for you. Paul did years ago uh, an appropriate design technology course along with the PDC. He videoed the whole thing. It's 177 hours worth of video and you can get it all for... 50 bucks. A lot of you, you know, we're going to be talking about what to do somewhat in the downtime of winter right now. How about go through an entire PDC for 50 bucks and get in a bonus uh, instructional of an appropriate technology course on it? Amazing instructors. This is one of the greatest values I've ever seen. I would imagine that there's a lot of people out there that teach PDCs that are probably mad at Paul uh, for even making this available for 50 bucks. Uh, there are other options on pricing if you want to download instead of the streaming or what have you. But this is just one of the greatest values that I've ever seen. Hundreds of you guys have taken uh, and, and gotten this one. I've not had a single complaint. And believe me, if there is anything uh, to complain about, people tend to complain about it. So with that, let's go ahead and jump on into uh, today's episode. And I want to start out with kind of where I'm coming from. And that is that this year was harsh. 
I mean, a lot of folks were just here for uh, the fall workshop, and we did some hands-on stuff. You'll even see a little bit of what we did today. But I said when we were walking around the property doing a couple projects for hands-on, you can literally look and see the point that Jack said, I quit this year. And I kept one garden bed going, and I kept certain trees alive. And it was literally like, you know that horrible decision that they tell parents, what if you had to pick which one of your kids live? The amount of water that we can produce from our well per day, and even if you're watering trees, once the ground is dry to a certain level, even watering that particular area is weak with what it'll do. It has to be kind of done repeatedly over a few weeks to get trees through the worst of it. Uh, we went 20 months with no significant rainfall. Uh, we just started getting rainfall again in August, and it's been pretty wet this fall, and I'm hoping the trend continues at least into late spring like it usually does. We will see. But between that drought and between the shallow soils that we have, we really just got our asses handed to us this year. And... Instead of being, you know, all down on myself about it or whatever, I did make that call this summer. And I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call it for the year and I'm going to do what I can to keep certain things alive. And I'm going to follow the permaculture principle of observe and interact and accepting feedback, those two principles. And so I watched and I saw what lived with help and what died with help. I also watched what died without help and what lived without help. Because some of the stuff survived, you wouldn't expect. And I'll show you a little, some short videos later where there's some mulberries we have that they got no help, not a drop of irrigation. And they don't even, they didn't just survive. Now that it started raining again, they kind of leafed out again and they look pretty good. Um, I'll also tell you that there's some stuff that I would have expected would have made it that we tried to save that still died in the harshness this year. So a big part of it was just the harsh reality, but Right from the get-go, when I kind of gave up on a lot of the property in July, I said, I'm going to watch, observe, interact, accept feedback, and use that to formulate my plan right about this time of year as to what to do going forward. And we did that, including with some of the, the stuff that we did at the workshop. The Also, was the, the reality of living 100% low-carb. There were things that worked in the garden this year that we just barely ate. And it's because they were high enough carb that we really just don't eat them anymore. We had pretty good production for several of our uh, our uh, our pear trees, and, and a lot of them ended up being eaten by ducks and geese and chickens. Not that I have anything against pears, but just as we're thinking about what we're eating, we're just not eating stuff that's high in carbohydrate anymore. So we probably need to let the stuff that's high in carbohydrate that wants to grow grow, but put no effort into any of it if it doesn't want to grow on its own, if it doesn't want to survive, and then. I, I really have accepted the need for at least, if not automated, easy to turn on and self-turning off irrigation. So I'm going to talk about and show you the diagram for the uh, the drip irrigation that we're putting in the main gardens um, in, in a little bit. And so those will not really be automated as I'm not going to run solenoid power and, and power to them. Uh, but they will have mechanical timers, and so it will all it will require is per zone. I'm gonna, you know, I have to build them to see how much I can run at once. But it really be like turn them on for 30 minutes, and they turn themselves off. And so I, I have accepted that I, I have to have this, 
And that, that will also enable me to do things like tell my grandson, hey, buddy, when you're done filling up the duct tanks today, go to garden beds one and two and turn the timers to 30 minutes. So yeah, there's, there's more than one kind of automation. There's automation where technology and power does it for you. There's automation where a young man is instructed to do a thing and he's pretty reliable at getting it done. So those are like my main drivers this year. I want to talk about the main gardens and I want to bring up for you guys a picture of what they look like right now while I'm talking about this. And so if you're on the video, you can see it or you can look the video up. This is what the main garden beds look like for those that have never seen them before. And so I brought this picture in today, both so you would understand what I'm talking about later with the drip irrigation so that you would understand the layout. And also, as I explained what we did, this is what they look like right now. You'll notice there's nothing growing in them, and they're covered with black. Because they surround my big Miyagi pond, people always think they're somehow connected to the pond, and that's a pond line or something like that. They're not. They're straight-up, plain, old gardens. They were designed around the Miyagi because it looks cool, and they were designed around the Miyagi because it was a good place to put a garden. So, and they're also, it's maybe hard to see, but the inside edges of them all the way around are set up with bench seating. So people can sit all the way around this pond and chat and talk, or uh, this needs to clean it up, but there's a little platform back here, a little metal, a uh, little scaffolding platform that we use for a lot of things. A lot of times if I'm teaching out there, I'll actually stand up on that platform so that I'm elevated and we'll put the students in the foreground there around there for smaller workshops that we might do with uh, locals or what have you. So that's what it looks like for those that were able to see that. What did we do uh, this year? So the first thing we did was we brought all of my Johnson Sioux-ish, right, compost that was left. So I made uh, two big rings of the Johnson Sioux-ish compost this year. I used a bunch of it throughout the year, and I had enough that we were able to put uh, a, a light coating 100% across all four of these garden beds. I say that's the first thing we did. First thing we did was any of them that still had anything growing in them, we chopped and dropped it to the ground. And you can see a big pile of uh, Bermuda grass uh, dried up out here from last week. We did not drop the Bermuda grass because that will tend to a lot of times cause it to propagate itself one way or another. So we dropped all the vegetables. This one garden bed back here on the left was actually full of tomatoes and peppers and everything. And I'm like, pick it and cut it down and put it on the ground. And people were like, man, I, uh, I, I, it looks so good still. I'm like, we're going to get a freeze. We're going to lose it anyway. So let's go ahead and get it done. So we did that. Uh, one of the big wins this year for us, in spite of this harshness, I used aspirin tablets with my tomato plants. Most of the tomato plants were actually volunteers too. And all I did was when they first started growing, I put like four aspirin tablets, dug a hole like I was putting uh, fertilizer at the roots, put them in there and watered them in. And about once a month, I went out there and put a couple uh, aspirin tablets. I have never had, since I started doing this, I have never had tomatoes uh, this late in the year, or I should say as late as last week in the year. Usually my tomatoes succumb to blight uh, fairly early on. And uh, that didn't happen this year. So aspirin was kind of a, a big win for us this year. So anyway, we did the chop and drop. Then we did the Johnson Sioux compost. So I left the mulch where it was. No need to, to move it out of the way. And we just applied the compost and spread it out. 
I then put down a significant amount of Dr. Earth uh, 444 uh, gold uh, fertilizer, which is a great organic fertilizer with a lot of uh, beneficial uh, microorganisms included in it. And that wasn't done with any real precision. It was just, I got a, a, a red solo cup like you have at a, at a, at a high school drinking party and uh, spread it out across the whole thing. Uh, then we did uh, sweet feed. And when I say sweet feed, I'm talking about all stock sweet feed. Basically, a lot of people feed it to horses and things like that. It's like a treat feed for livestock for like uh, horses or goats or something like that. Uh, 12% protein. It's got like a molasses binder. Uh, I really like using that to feed soil organisms. I know some people are opposed to feeding sugar to your soil organisms. I am not. I have never had a negative consequence from it. So then we threw out a bunch of that. We probably used half a bag on all four beds. The beds are 12 by 12 in the back and 8 by 8 in the front. So they are 70 square feet, I think, is what it comes out to. 80 square feet is what it comes down to each. And so we probably did, uh, like I said, a half a bag across uh, 320 square feet. And it wasn't any, like, really accurate thing. It was just like, hey, that looks like about right. And then I had a 1,000 worms. So I threw roughly a quarter of each of the worms into each bed to restock the worm activity because they get wiped out most of the, mostly by fire ants in the summer. And then we put down uh, weed blocker. And that is like just kind of like the, the highest end uh, weed blocker you can get. And if you notice, there's no mulch. What's the deal with that? What ends up destroying weed blocker over time, and when I say it's a 25-year warranty or whatever, no, it's not because nobody's ever going to freaking go through the hell to try to get their money back on weed blocker. That's why they put those warranties on. Weed blocker works really well from things coming up from the bottom as far as not falling apart. What happens is when you put mulch, inevitably over time, your weed blocker will end up with the mulch breaking down. It forms soil. Uh, you end up in a moist period of time or you're irrigating. Pioneering weeds come into the mulch. Then they put their roots into, from above down into uh, your weed blocker, and eventually it needs replacing. Uh, some people will, um, when it comes to weed blocker, uh, remove it every year and then and, and reapply it. And so it'll last longer that way. I, I ain't nobody got time for that. I get about four or five seasons out of weed blocker if I use it the way that we're going to be using it here. I used to use it all the time. I went away from it. I tried to go 100% organic, and all it did was make me miserable and make me have to pull more weeds. So we put these down with 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 proper, they're called staples, which are like little two-ended spikes with fender washers that come with them. And uh, that's it. And it is going to sit like that until it's time to plant in the spring. When it's time to plant in the spring, we'll make holes where the plants go. That'll make a lot of sense here in a second when I pull up uh, the diagram for the, uh, the drip irrigation system that's going in. And uh, we will mulch then. And that means that we'll get a extra half season without having that mulch. And who knows, maybe we'll pull the mulch off it and do the same thing again going into next year. And we'll see how it lasts. But it is the best uh, plant fabric that I was able to get. The nice thing about building your beds out of uh, landscape timbers is that they're eight foot. And if you build beds the way I do, you end up with your 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 width being actually a little less than four feet because of the way they interlock. And that means when you take a piece of 48 inch landscape fabric, it just 
perfectly covers your surface area. So that worked out really easy. This was a real easy project to do. And it let the students understand what I mean when I say put them to bed. So instead of trying to, uh, to get fancy with it, all we did was we just said, hey, we're taking a break for the winter season. We're holding the weeds in check for the winter season, and we'll plant fresh in the spring. And that's going to give me the ability this winter to not look at, touch, do anything with the garden beds and put my efforts elsewhere. Um, now, I want to also show you guys the drip irrigation system that I have designed. And this is just a diagram, but I think it'll make sense. This is going to be done with PVC. And it was, I really wanted to put the, uh, the picture up for you first of the gardens themselves so that this diagram would make more sense. Um, each, there's four of those beds like you saw. There is an arch, cattle panel arch for each of the gateways in between the beds. So, Let's pull that back up real quick so that makes sense. Right here you can see that there is a cattle panel that's arched, and I believe this is 8 foot, but I could be wrong. It could be 7 foot, whatever the distance worked out when I did the, the, the graphing and the scaling. We put a cattle panel up over each one. The back beds have cattle panels across the back for things like beans and cucumbers and tomatoes. And then the, the, the two in the front do not have the back ones, but they do have the cattle panels. So just so that makes sense. So right there, if, I don't know if you guys can see my cursor or not, but right there is where each one of the beds has a stubbed up one inch water pipe plumbed into the well. And then that creates a distribution pattern of two pipes, one, in, one running across the long backside, one across the long front side, holes in both sides of the pipes. I think it came out to, let's see in my notes here, it's right there in front of me, 60 holes, 80 square feet. So I'm not trying to go for headhunter or trophy hunter production out of these gardens. Those four beds will produce more vegetables than Dorothy and I can use. They, they really will. And I want consistent, healthy production over trying to cram as much in as I can and instead of trying to gild out by planting close, which is what I've done in the past, we will gild out by using that fabric barrier to knock weeds back. And so what's going to happen is I'll build the first one of these and I'll test it. And I'll see, well, you know, hey, it works. I'll build a second one, see if I can run two at a time. And I'll figure out, can I run two at a time or can I run all four at a time? My gut is, based on some volumetric calculations and seeing what other people did with drip, is I'll be able to run two beds per time. So it'll be two waterings, and then the whole four beds are done at about 30 minutes. I'm going to be doing this with PVC, half-inch PVC pipe, and you really want to get your holes in a line, right, a perfect line. So how do you make a line on a piece of PVC pipe that doesn't twist around and spiral? How do you get a perfectly straight line? All you do is you take two pieces of pipe, you take zip ties and you zip tie the pipes together. And where the pipes come together, you take a black Sharpie marker and you draw a line that goes on both pipes. Now you have a perfectly straight line. Now you rotate them so they're on the outside at 90 degrees from each other and you got a line on the other side. Now you can do holes on both sides of your pipe nicely lined up. I'm doing PVC for a variety of reasons. One, it, when you go with a half-inch delivery pipe, it doesn't actually cost much more than using drip irrigation line. Two, because you're drilling a hole 
Uh, you have a bit of a larger hole, and my water tends to clog drip irrigation, even when filtered due to its hardness. Uh, three, even that will still get clogged, but it will be very easy to unclog. And I can teach a young man how to do that with a nail once a week as part of his chores as well. So that's what we're going to do for drip irrigation. If you are listening to the audio, that may uh, may not may not be as easy to follow as those that are in the video today. But I think the important thing to get is that we're going with drip and we're doing that because we know that it'll work. And there's a couple things about drip that I don't think people think about that you probably should when it comes to uh, your garden. When we water everything around a garden, we end up getting a lot more weeds because we're putting the water beyond where it absolutely must be. So instead of soaking it in at the plant's root system, we're going everywhere. And when we're doing raised beds, inevitably that means we're watering outside the beds right on the edges. And we're a lot more likely to cultivate grass up into the beds at a higher degree. So that's one thing. Two, um, even the way I'm doing this kind of a low-tech method to get started with, we can still use inline fertility if we want to. We can fertigate. So that means we can put fertilizer into the water into the system. So that's another really awesome thing. Uh, and then number three, what everybody thinks about it, it just uses less water. The nice thing about doing these with PVC will be that, and if you, I have like all my fittings worked out, everything designed in for um, each section. And I have no plans to glue the PVC together. Which means if we actually get to a point, some point where like I have a lot of clogging, I will literally be able to just pull that one length of pipe out, shove a garden hose into it at full blast, and blow it out. Every year, if I need to do work, instead of like moving lines or anything like that, you can just disconnect everything, throw it next to the bed, add your mulch, do your, your annual maintenance, whatever, and just stick it all back together. Really easy. If you can put Tinker Toys together, you can put dry fit PVC pipe together. Um, so I think it's going to work out really well. And I think it's been a long time coming. And so that's a big plan we have for this year. Now, I did want to talk about something else that we're doing. And we've already been on the track to doing this, but it's going to be more so than ever before. I like weird shit when it comes to stuff to grow. I like to get the Baker Creek catalog and all the different seed catalogs and sit down and read about all the new stuff. I like to grow novel items. And I try to grow one or two every year. Because what tends to happen is I find one or, or so a year that we end up being like long-term huge fans of. And we found one this year that I'm absolutely in love with. So I'll still grow a little bit of other things. But when it comes to spring through summer into fall, you know, we still might do some uh, cauliflower, broccoli, stuff like that uh, through our winters or something in some of our other beds. But these beds are primarily going to be spring to fall gardens. So in our climate, that's straight through. There's really only about eight, nine crops that we're really going to focus on growing from this point out because of the ones that we use. They don't go to waste. They don't end up feeding chickens and they fit with our diet, which is very keto at this point. Number one is peppers. And we had great success. I have a gallon of peppers just from that last harvest that the students did. I was like, so tired. And the one guy's like, where do you want me to put the bag of peppers? And I'm like, I don't know, man, you guys can take some if you want. I don't even know if I'll get them processed this week. We left them out in the shop. It was nice and cool out there. 
they were, you know, a couple of them were a little off. All the rest of them were in really great shape. We got a full gallon of chopped up peppers that we put in the freezer just from the last harvest. So we always do well with peppers. We eat a lot of peppers. We use them in cooking. We use them raw. We use them, you know, we dehydrate them. Uh, we use them in salads. Uh, we use them sauteed with other vegetables on the side with, with steak. So we'll definitely keep growing peppers. And we grow sweet and hot. Uh, I've kind of known for my jalapenos. And uh, so we'll keep doing those. Something we didn't grow a lot of this year that we really should have grew more of is basil. Uh, that's our big summer leaf crop. Uh, we grow different varieties of basil. We'll keep doing that. It loves the heat as long as you can get it enough water. Uh, an early crop that's done really well for us that we love eating that we'll keep growing and it's done really well for us is fennel, uh, specifically bulb fennel. And we use the fronds, we use the bulb, we use everything. It definitely falls in for carbohydrates within the realm of something someone on keto can eat. Cucumber, we don't need a ton of them, but all we need is one or two um, of the Asian variety cucumbers we grow, and we'll keep growing those. Tomatoes, I was ready to quit. I was ready to never grow tomatoes again a couple of years ago. I was so tired of getting some tomatoes and then having my plants look so beautiful and then the mix of early and late blight coming in that we get here, and then just being devastated, wiped out. Maybe some of them would come back around with some cuttings or something in the fall and get a few more, and it just didn't seem worth it. The aspirin trick. Using aspirin was an absolute game changer, and our tomatoes were healthy, and when they were cutting down the vines, they kept finding tomato hornworms, which most people, when you have tomato hornworms, they just devastate your tomato plants. They were either growing fast enough or not being fed on hard enough that you couldn't tell that the, the worms were there until they started pulling them out and finding them. Um, I have never had the success that we've had with tomatoes in Texas like I did this year. And I, all, I owe it all to James White, who told me about the aspirin trick. And I really, really recommend uh, that you start trying it. I mean, you can buy a giant bottle of aspirin for like four bucks. And there's, there is this whole idea that you got to like one tablet to a gallon of water. And I, I don't, I ain't got time for this. So, like I said, all I do is pull back the soil, maybe an inch deep near the roots of the plant and throw like two or three aspirin tablets in it and cover it back up. And I did that, tried to do it once a month, but honestly I did it. Like if the plant started to look like it was getting a little bit of blight on it, I'd throw three or four of them in it. And I even, I, I, most of my tomatoes this year were volunteers, but I had two that I, 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 I planted from seed and I started giving them the aspirin tablets when they were still in the little pots. And they have, I, I can't, I can't say enough good about what that did for me. Next up, I want to talk about these python beans, python snake beans. These are actually a gourd. They're what's in the picture. Uh, from today's episode and you can see me in the thumbnail today standing there holding one that's a little bitty one they got a lot bigger than that um, I left them on the vine until the workshop so that people could see them on the vine they were only about half usable at that point because they start to turn orange like a pumpkin orange color and the part of them that turns orange gets really soft and it's not so good to eat anymore the inside is like a red pulp it kind of tastes like tomato paste, but I would say better. It's sweeter and it's not really acidic, but the closest thing you could explain it to somebody. And when you take the seeds out, it looks like some alien thing and you pop the seeds out. I had a bunch of students that de-seeded them for me and then saved the parts that we could cook. 
and uh, I let everybody take some seed, and I basically kept half the seed and gave half the seed away from all of, all of the ones I had. I'm going to grow the hell out of these next year, and I'll tell you why. Even when they – these are really a gourd, not a bean. They call them a python snake bean. When they're raw, they taste like cucumber and green bean, dominant to the cucumber. When you cook them, they taste like cucumber and green bean, dominant to the green bean. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how big they are. They don't get um, hard and tough and fibrous. I, I cut up a bunch of it. All I did was throw it on our Blackstone flat top after this workshop. We were getting like a pre-lunch snack. Hit them with some olive oil and salt. And people wiped them out. They couldn't get over how good those things were. They were absolutely delicious. Is the only word that I could use to describe them. It's been a long time since I've been that excited about eating a vegetable. Uh, even Ken Berry, the carnivore himself, ate some of them and said, those are freaking delicious. So I really recommend considering those next year. Again, they're called Python Snake Bean. Uh, you can get them at rareseeds.com, which is Baker Creek, uh, which is you know place everybody goes to get them. Um, my one caveat, I almost gave up on them. And I put it off to the heat and the drought, except they looked pretty good. They just didn't produce. They didn't produce all summer long. They would set little fruits, and then the little fruits wouldn't go anywhere. And I correctly surmised because they were not being pollinated. The flower on these things, and maybe there's a way to manually pollinate them. I'll try it again next year. Um I, but I tried just kind of like getting one flower and trying to pull it back and like pushing it on the other flower and it didn't seem to work. And then we got rain in August and it went flush with flowers. And then it set a bunch of them and one vine made me a ton of them and they kept coming and coming and coming. And then it stopped setting new ones and it set a couple more. And I'm like, I need to do some I need to do some research here. Like something isn't right. Like just because it was hot doesn't mean we should have got no fruit set. And it turns out that these particular species of plant, and they're not a male and female flower. Josh is saying that right now, right? So like squashes, sometimes you have like a male flower and a female flower. No, they're, they're, uh, they should be able to, like the flower should be able to pollinate itself, honestly. But I guess they don't. Like, they're a perfect flower. That's what I'm trying to say, like a pepper is. They still need pollinators for it to work for whatever reason. They are pollinated by moths. And the moths that pollinate them tend to be nocturnal moths, either active in the evening or very early morning before it's fully light out. Uh, Often they look like um, they're like the hummingbird moths, some people call them. And my theory, and it is only a theory, is that this year with the drought and all, they just weren't there when the when they first started flowering. They just weren't around. They weren't there. They didn't come out. And I say that because we had so many things out of time sequence this year. Like usually we have like a bunch of flies show up early, right before summer starts. And we have to deal with freaking flies and the ducks eat the flies and the flies get in the house, and he said little fly traps and all that. We didn't have any flies in the spring and early summer this year at all. I mean, none. 
those that were just here at the workshop, freaking flies were everywhere late in the season this year. Like it was like they just moved in their life cycle. And I'm thinking those moths just weren't around. So next year I'll play with it a little bit more. I'll do some more research because I would like to get production on them through the full year. Uh, I had have not preserved them in any way. So I don't know if, you know, I know they make good pickles because I saw other people do it and they like them. I'm not a huge pickle guy though. I eat, you know, pickles a couple times a year. Um, I've never tried a dehydrated, frozen, whatever with them. My guess is there's going to be no way that they're better than, than anything fresh. The other two plants that we will continue to grow are Asian long beans and scarlet runner beans. I'm big on beans as long as they're green potted beans instead of actual when the seeds are formed. And so you're eating a mature bean. That's kind of a different animal for me. One is a vegetable. One is a legume, in my opinion. That might not be scientific, but it's how I manage my diet. And Asian eggplants. Um, uh, those, those have just been one of our, you know, one of those things that we tried and like just really worked out well. There was an eggplant that we tried growing this year that's supposed to taste like pepper and tomato combined. I can't remember what it's called, but they grow like orange and about the size of like a little tiny pumpkin. Uh, Russo or something like that. We did get a couple. They were delicious, but nothing really did that good this year. So I'll probably give those a chance uh, this year. Next, I want to talk about plans for the aviary. Many of you guys know I have a 50-foot long by 10-foot wide aviary. It's got a nine-foot high stick back wall, and then it's got cattle panels that go up like a lean-to kind of style, like a half, like a half a tunnel, and it's completely covered with uh, half-inch uh, hardware cloth. So it is absolutely immune to predators. We originally built it for quail, and my wife stopped eating quail. She just decided she didn't want to eat quail, and so I'm not big on going through. Um, I'm not big on going through a lot of trouble to produce something that I'm the only one that's going to eat it. So a quail went away. I ended up putting a bunch of wicking beds in there. It is too crowded to effectively use the wicking beds. So the wicking beds are coming out, if not all of them, most of them. Uh, there is a small pond in there that's built out of uh, an 11 foot by six foot, 250 gallon drip tray. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you use to collect like uh, oil spills and stuff like that in a shop. And I got that off of uh, Facebook Marketplace. Got two of them, gave one to Nick Ferguson. I don't know what he ever did with it, but it's a nice little 11 inch deep pond that's inside the aviary. I have a 50 gallon ebb and flow bed attached to it. I've never got a ton of production out of it. Mostly it's produced beans for me, just regular green beans and things like that. And some other stuff. It's been a bed that I've used a lot for cloning. So when I do get things like sweet potato growing or, tomato growing and I want more, I take cuttings and throw it in there and use it as a rooting tool. I'm going to add a second ebb and flow bed in that area. I am not doing it to grow stuff so much is for uh, water filtration. It's going to become a seasonal pond. Uh, the goldfish that are in it will either come out permanently or at least come out during the winter. It's going to become something I don't worry about freezing up or anything in the winter. It's going to be a spring through summer system. And what I'm going to use it for is muscovy ducks so i'll take you know three of my hens my biggest drake and i'll put them in there right about the time that they start looking like they want to go broody and they're really slamming out the eggs uh a student asked me why not put you know all of them in there uh why not put both drakes in there and the reason is if you've ever watched drake muscovies freaking fight and what happens is the most dominant one whoops ass i mean it is 
It's it's a pretty aggressive wing beatdown. And the one that ended up on the losing end, like it never gets that bad because he finally realizes, like, I'm beat, and he backs off. And to back off, he needs to go away. Now, they'll get along. I mean, they'll, they'll be back together half an hour later. But when the rage comes and there's a beatdown, the loser, the way they say, I accept your dominance, is they go away. If you put them in a cage like that, they can't go away, and that fight could get really gruesome. It also lets me control my genetics. So my biggest trait gets bred to my best girls, right? And there's some other ones, and they might just get to go around and see how they do, but this is what happened to me this year. Another kick in the ass. They do not like to go broody in the duck house. I don't know why. I think it's because they're so much of a wild bird, and I love Muscovy ducks. They're my favorite meat that we've ever produced here. They're just delicious, and they're just nice birds. Well, because of that wild nature, they like to go find a place to brood away from the other birds. They find a little place to tuck in under a deck, behind a hot tub, um, in a bush somewhere, in a food forest, what have you. And they start laying their eggs, and then they sit, and then they do their thing. They are kind of like a goose duck is the way I describe them. They're, they have properties about them that are very goose-like. They have properties about them that are very duck-like. Taxonomically, they are a duck. Um, but like geese, they have a longer gestation period than a conventional duck. So your mallard breeds of ducks, they sit on eggs for 27 days. Your muscovies sit on them for 35 days. That's a long time. That's more than a month. And in general speaking, when they're somewhere out there on the property and they're sitting that long, sooner or later, a predator is going to find them and kill them because they will not leave their eggs. They won't do it. They are incredibly defensive mothers. They'll sit there, they'll hiss and whatever. But a coyote, a bobcat, a raccoon is like, I see what you're doing. I don't care. And so I lost six girls this year to predators while they were sitting, and I didn't know it until I eventually came by the remnants of their nest because they would kill the mother and then, of course, after a time, eat all the eggs. So I want to have a reserve stock of these guys that I know I'm going to get production out of. So they're going to be in there. And the reason for that second ebb and flow bed is I'm not going to keep them out of that pond. You know, we're talking like four ducks, one drake, three girls. Muscovies do not make water nasty like mallard ducks do either. I'm not saying they don't make it nasty. I'm saying they don't make it nasty to the equivalent. So with 100 gallons of filtration and the ability to, like, flush that out anytime I want, I can I can dump all 250 gallons of that. It'll go into my top swale, and I can refill it, like, really, really quick. I should be able to get them through the brooding cycle, which will be about 45-ish days. They need about 10 days to stack eggs and 35 days to sit. And I will leave the drake in there with them because muscovies, again, another thing I find about them is more goose-like than duck-like. A mallard breed duck, and all your rowans, your blue Swedish, your Welsh harlequins, all of those ducks are mallards. And all of them are mallards. They are, they, they originally, the first, the first domesticated ducks were rowans, which were just, they kept breeding the mallards, the common greenhead mallard until they got bigger. And then they came up with different color variations and body shape and what, but they're all mallards. A mallard drake, when a hen sits, he might hang out a little bit, but basically he's like, I'll see you when you come back. Muscovy drakes stay with the girls, especially at night. So if I don't let him stay in there, 
he's going to park his ass right outside that aviary where he's bobcat bait. So I will leave them until uh, such time as, as, as they are – the babies are big enough to let them go out without them being easily targeted. So when they're three, four weeks old and mom wants to take them back to the duck house, at about that time I'll start having them come back out of there. So that's that plan, and that is probably going to supplant bringing in breast chickens. I got the whole breast chicken movement going on in the TSP community. I'm really intrigued by it. Uh, but I'm at a point now where I don't want to do more. I want to do less. So I'm following my own advice. And when we get certain things completely buttoned down, working absolutely perfectly to perfection, and it's not laborious and we're not like, gee, I wish I had one more extra hour this week. Then we might consider adding something else. So I hope many of you are doing well with the breast chickens, but I probably won't be getting any, uh, going into spring. And then again, if I'm going to, the way that's going to happen is all the little Bantam chickens that are like little pets to me that I love so much, they're all going to have to go to freezer camp. So it's just going to be either breast chickens or Bantam chickens, not both. Um, I do need to make some repairs there. There's a few places where the the hardware cloth is kind of like separating, and I need to just take some scrap lumber and uh, slap it on with a nail gun. But it's real easy, easy uh, uh, project. but that's mainly what it's going to be is a Muscovy duck brooder for the mothers to go ahead, sit and take care of everything for me. The food forest losses were high, um, really high. This again was the, the worst year I've ever seen. And I don't mean here at nine mile farm. I mean, I came to Texas first in 1993 and this was the hardest year that I've seen. We have a creek that I take my grandson fishing in. It's about six miles to my north. And it's the Spring Fred Creek. And I talked to my veterinarian this summer and I said, do you know that that creek stopped running? And he said, yeah, I do. He's in his seventies. He said he doesn't remember a time that creek ever didn't run. And no one he knew could remember a time that creek didn't run. And I think we were on the edge of having dead fish everywhere all through Azel. Because that creek runs right through Azel. And that rain in August came and it started flowing again because some of those pools that I walked down to, there were just fish rippling everywhere in those pools. So they ended up getting, uh, they ended up uh, surviving. At least most of them did. I'm sure a lot of raccoons were kind of partying with the easy pickings. Uh, for quite a while with that, but uh, it was a tough year. And when we went through the food forest, there were trees that we really thought, you know, were well-established and would have made it and they were dead. But I was also surprised at how many things lived and specifically what lived. I'll show you a couple real quick videos here in a second. um, And I'll talk through them because there's no sound on them, but mulberries in particular made it. And are actually looking pretty good right now. Like, uh, they're specifically the ever-bearing ones. So even though they lost a lot of leaves in the drought, once the rain came, since they haven't had their leaves knocked off them from being cold enough yet, uh, they kind of leaf back out. Some of them are even producing, though. I think all the little berries, we got a, we got a freeze yesterday, and I think all the little berries got frozen off, even though the leaves stayed on. Uh, but I was surprised we would survive. We have a chingapin which is kind of like a, uh, a cousin, more like a brother, I guess, of the American chestnut that we planted years ago. It's not big, but it made it through. It's still alive. 
Uh, we had a lot of things survive. We had some uh, muscadines survive. But what we did, we went in to the food forest for the workshop, and we did a chop and drop. And I'll bring the video up for you right now and kind of talk you through it um, as to what we did. We just basically took along the fence. There were a ton of these trees. And uh, Nick Ferguson said he thought he knew what they are, but I can't remember what the word is. The neighbor calls them onion trees. They're kind of a junk tree. Uh, and some of the trees that died, we took down with a chainsaw. Most of this we did with pruners uh, and lopper pruners. And we just stacked them all up on the berm. And that's my lowest swale down there. Before we did that, we went in and we put just ryegrass seed as a cover crop down. And then we mulched with straw. And then we put these trees over top of everything. And uh, so that's that's what that looks like. The next thing I want to show you, though, is a higher upswale. And you can see that this is right now. This is this morning I shot this video. That is a muscadine. And look how happy it is. It, it survived. It made it. Uh, down here is another uh, big amount of chop and drop. And that tree right there is a jujube tree. And all of that chop and drop, very spiky, sharp, thorny stuff, uh, came off of that jujube. I should say not really off of that jujube. It, they're suckers from the jujube. I do not recommend planting jujube trees in a food forest at all anymore. I think it was one of my mistakes uh, planting that tree. It suckers incredibly absolutely incredibly and jordan john says uh nice hoogle mounts they're not hoogle mounts those are swell mounts they do not have wood cores they have wood on top of them that is chop and drop not hoogle anyway um the jujubes send out massive amounts of suckers now i will say this they are ideally suited to for harsh dry climates as long as they get some water they will thrive and they will produce like crazy if you live where fire ants are, the problem is that the fire ants will get more yield than you do. As the fruit begins to ripen, there's so much sugar in it, it's like a magnet for fire ants. And they make a little hole and they go inside and they waller it out. So you go pull, pull this fruit off and you open it up and all that's left is a pit and a bunch of brown and the ants have eaten the hell out of it. So it doesn't produce a lot for me. But if you live where fire ants aren't, Southern California is supposed to be a great climate to grow these in. Uh, they are pretty delicious. They kind of taste like a dry apple. They have one big seed in them, uh, but they produce the suckers like crazy. If they're planted somewhere that you can mow around them with a mower, not a big deal because the little sucker comes up, little sucker gets cut off, little sucker comes up, little sucker gets cut off. If they're like up into a mound-based system or something like that, I have to do what the students did twice a year. This year, the students did it for me, but usually I have to do it in the spring and I have to do it again in the fall, even in a dry year. And it is like barbed wire or when they when you um you hear stories about the crucifixion and the crown of thorns when you look at the thorns on these trees it's what it makes you think of like they are just brutal uh to deal with so i do not you know necessarily anyway recommend them unless you have a way to keep the suckers down without having to manually drop and drop uh but uh, back in the video now you can see going down that berm this is uh a white mulberry. And when I say white mulberry, and I'm talking about that particular tree right there, I'm not talking about white mulberry like Nick Ferguson tops as the uh, the genius, Mora Alba. Um, it is a Mora Alba, but it, when I say white mulberry, I mean a white fruited mulberry. These things taste like crack cocaine candy sugar. They're so sweet. And this tree, I'm going to keep playing the video, it is alive. And you can see that it did survive. There was no irrigation here 
through this misery at all. Um, but you can also see it has dead components to it too. I have to now decide, do I want a completely composite about where I just made that motion with my hand? Um, or do I want to kind of wait it out till the end of the year and, uh, see about or wait until it starts kind of coming back in spring and then pruning off the dead. The problem with that if, is if I wait that long and I decide I want to just take it off at some point, basically a low pollard, um, it's not as good for the tree as it would be if as soon as it loses the last of its leaves, if I do it right now while it's dormant. Think of pruning trees like surgery. We can do surgery while you're awake. You probably don't want to, so we want to do minor surgery while you're awake. If we're going to crack your chest open and do heart bypass surgery, you probably want to be under anesthesia for that. You want to be asleep. So your your radical surgery to your trees, you want to do that in the dormant period if possible. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with those yet, but what I'm thinking about is more of a maybe a bit higher pollard than I said in the video there for that one. There's two of those, two more of those trees. And they're both fine. And both of them made it, one with very little irrigation and one with none. So I've become really impressed with Mulberry's tolerance. Now, this is once established, of course, but with Mulberry's tolerance uh, for drought this year. And because of that, I have um, a plant on my property called Mora alba Isse, which is a dwarf mulberry, and it grows more like a bush than a tree. And it is the easiest damn tree to propagate I have ever seen in my life. You wait till spring. When it starts to put out new growth, you take what are called softwood cuttings, which is where the stem is green, but if you bend it, it will snap. You don't want it to like kind of fold over. You want it green still. It hasn't hardened off, turned to brown wood, but when you bend it, it kind of pops, kind of like a straw or kind of over. You take that, you stick it in a pot with some moist potting soil, you put it in the shade, you keep it wet for a week, and it has roots. You keep it wet for three weeks, and it's ready to transplant. So I am going to make a ton of those because the birds absolutely love them. They're also a good fodder tree. They coppice and pollard. Uh, I had had some issues some years where one will get a disease on it. You just cut it to the ground, and the new growth that comes back is beautiful. And so it's a fodder tree. It's a fruit tree. It's easy to grow. It's easy to propagate. So Basically, any place that is not got living trees in it in the food forest where I want trees, those are going in. I'll plant 10 to the spot so one will live this spring. What we did, though, while we were chopping and dropping and doing the work that I showed you in that video, if you're in the, in the video, uh, we put a ton of cuttings in for willow and poplar that I bought from Nick Ferguson. So hybrid willow and hybrid poplar went in there. So it's going from a food forest to more of a fodder forest. So if you look at some of the species we have in there now, we have the, the dwarf uh, mulberry and the white mulberry, white fruit mulberry, which we've already, always had. Now we have um, a hybrid willow and hybrid poplar, and we're going to be upping that other mulberry. We also have native hackberry growing in there and a lot of black locust. And my geese and my ducks will eat all of that as fodder. And all of that is also decent rabbit fodder if we ever got into a situation where we decided we wanted to do that. And it's also my wife loves willows. So, like, it's win, win, win all around. So we, we've kind of successed in that direction. We took the feedback and we said, what lived? What lived? What didn't care that we had a bad year? What made it through the end? We're going to plant more of that. 
I'm not going to constantly be fighting upstream, trying to grow pluots and stuff like that. I, I don't eat them much anymore anyway. Um, and again, questions and all caps, but I will answer one of them right now that isn't from Josh. Have you got any eucalyptus? No, we have no eucalyptus. Uh, I, I'm not even aware if they will survive in this climate of Texas or not, but we don't have any eucalyptus. Um, next, um, there'll be more coming later. I'm not done with telling you all the things that we're going to be doing uh, going into next year. We will have another episode like this probably before Christmas, if not right after I come back from the Christmas break. Again, though, I want to talk about the week ahead. So tomorrow you won't have a show like this. You're going to have a rewind that's going to be as a new episode number so that people will listen to it that otherwise might not because it is the it is the show that I have gotten the most thank yous for out of all the shows that I've ever done. And it's they all really go to Chef Keith. It was how to cook a turkey because people that have never really been happy with the results from cooking a turkey before were like, I made a wonderful turkey. So uh, we're going to play that one. I'm going to do it Tuesday because if I wait till Wednesday to do it, some of the advice in it will be too late to take. But I'm going to give you some of that advice right now. If you plan on cooking a turkey on Thursday and your cookie, your turkey on Monday is in the freezer, you are wrong. Start defrosting your turkey now. That doesn't mean throw it in the sink and leave it there for three days. Um, people say not to defrost your turkey outside the refrigerator. I generally, when I take a turkey out, I do throw it in the sink for like three or four hours. Then I put it in like a roasting pan or something, and I throw it in the refrigerator and let it defrost. I'm actually cooking my turkey Friday, and my turkey came out of the the freezer on Saturday. I'm doing a dry brine this year. You can dry brine while you're still a bit frozen, but when I dry brine, I do salt uh, and herbs, and I like to get some of it up under the skin, and if it's not defrosted enough to lift the skin on the breast, you can't do that. So I like a fully defrosted bird when I go to apply my dry brine. But that would be the number one piece of advice I would give you that will go with the rest of the show yesterday. Your turkey, if you take it out of the freezer right now, will be fine in the refrigerator until Thursday morning when you go to cook it. Your turkey, if you take it out Wednesday, will be frozen in the center Thursday when you go to cook it. So that's one of the things. But the other stuff in there, it'll give you time to do it. Then we've been doing the Thanksgiving special. A survivalist look at Thanksgiving since I started the show in 08. I did the original version of my car. We play that every year, just like we have the Christmas special. We do that before I go away for Thanksgiving holidays. So then I'll be gone Thursday and Friday. I'll be back Monday with our regularly scheduled programming returning. But that's not it. That's not all. On Wednesday, I I don't know how he announces his live feeds or whatever. uh, And I don't know when he'll put out the audio episode. But I am doing an episode uh, of of uh, a podcast with Texas Slim on his show, Texas Slim of the Beef Initiative uh, and Beef and Bitcoin and all that good stuff. And we're not going to be talking about Bitcoin, though. We're going to be talking about backyard meat production. Um, Slim started the Beef Initiative, and it's the whole idea of knowing your rancher, buying from your rancher, buying direct, or even if you're buying by mail, buying from an American rancher and having his product shipped straight to you. I think that's great. But I'm also like, we have so many people that are coming to the reality that the most nutritious food we have is, is animal protein and fat. And so you got on the Bitcoin train or not, I don't care. And you found your local rancher and you buy beef from your local rancher. And you say, I got a quarter acre, a half acre, three acres, what have you. I can't grow, I can't grow cows here responsibly, right? This is not the place for it. 
And so I'm going to buy my beef and I can't grow my own beef. But man does not live on beef alone, though he certainly could. So what can I do? And what I'm going to do with Slim is I'm going to walk through all the different forms of backyard protein. We're probably going to talk about like your simplest, easiest, smallest uh, bang for the buck is probably quail. Some different ways you can do quail. Uh, we're going to talk about rabbits, though I'm not an expert on rabbits and I've never done rabbits. I have a pretty good handle on them. Uh, and the fact that we can actually feed rabbits from stuff we grow on site. We're definitely going to talk about Muscovy ducks because I think they might be the perfect solution for many people because they grow their own babies. They raise them. They do everything for you. They taste like baby beef. Um, they're easy to process. They don't make a lot of noise. And as long as you clip their wings, they won't go shit in your neighbor's pool. So we'll talk about that. You know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about chickens and what you can and can't do successfully raising meat chickens in like blue hair Karen neighborhoods, what you can get away with and can't get away with. Eggs we'll talk about, of course. And maybe we'll even talk about like if you have a little bit bigger piece of land moving up to like hair sheep, like St. Croix. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that. So if you're looking for more content like today, this week for me, while it won't be on my podcast, make sure you're subscribed to Texas Slim's podcast. I'll make sure I add a link to the show notes for you today. And that's it. And then this is where I also tell you, like, here's what to expect for the rest of the year. I will hit it hard for you. I am going to work my ass off for you. Starting next week, we go back to, like, balls-to-the-wall action from TSP, practical shows like today, uh, current event shows like today. Like, I will, I will go back to hitting it as hard as I can for you. And this will be last call for people uh, to ask me questions in all caps in the comments while I'm going through. And I'll go back and answer those questions in just a second. I got like 12 stars right now. I'm sure I missed some. So uh, I will hit it hard. And then about a week before Christmas week, you'll notice a decidedly slowing down in the energy level. I'll still be doing good shows, but it'll be winding down. I, I That last week, I kind of coast into the Christmas holiday. And I don't know how the dates work out this year, but it's usually around the 22nd or 23rd, the Christmas special airs, and I'm gone. And I come back on like the 2nd of January. And this is something I encourage people to do, whatever level of it you can. Not everybody can take off from the 22nd or 23rd to like the 2nd of January. This started for me when I was still broke and I didn't even have a family yet. It just became a thing. I worked in the telecommunications field and I was a contractor and I'm going back to like being like 22 years old here. And they just sent us home. We didn't get paid. They were just like, yep, we'll see you in January. Bye. And so we had like a two week period every year. We had to save money up for it all because we didn't have, you know, vacation pay for it. And, uh, but we were off. And as I transitioned into to family life, I was like, you know, that's a pretty good time to be off. And I always worked it out using my PTO creatively and what have you to where I was just not working from right before Christmas until after New Year's and I was with my family. So that will happen this year again. And I, I really recommend uh, that you try to integrate some of that into your own life. And then we'll come back in January hitting it hard again. And, and, and we will be in our 15th year officially in January. I guess we already are. Uh, June 20th will be our 15th year of doing TSPC. Again, today's episode was what, 3202 or something like that? Yeah, 3202, 3,202 episodes of the Survival Podcast. And stay alert as we go into next year. There will be a cool 15-year anniversary party. 
I will make it so this year that just about anybody that wants to come can come. We'll find a venue. We'll quote a price per head. And whatever that price is, we'll sell tickets at cost. Uh, when I did the 10 year, I tried to pay for it out of pocket and I got to like a budget level of like 75 people. Then I opened some tickets and I think it would just be easier to say like for this amount, you get two drinks, you get a meal. This is the venue. This is what's going on. It's going to be three hours long, whatever. And then like you, and then we pay them. And then like you have the bar you go to and order your extra stuff and all. I might do some extra stuff this year. Um, I have found a really cool sporting clays range that I am enjoying the hell out of. It's only, if you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes from my house. And I was thinking about doing a shoot in the daytime and then the party in the evening. We had found a really cool venue we thought about using that's very close to my house because uh, they have a great outdoor space. But all they offer is wine. So I know a lot of you guys are more bourbon, beer type drinkers, and they have pretty limited menus. So the place we did the tenure would be perfect. It was called Mesomaya. I loved that place. COVID killed it. It's gone. So we're going to have to find a new venue, but keep an eye out for that. You know, and whatever the cost coming, it's going to be like less than 50 bucks a head, right? So it's not going to be real expensive. And uh, we now the sporting clay thing will have its own cost associated with it. But uh, I, I really look forward to getting people to, for that celebration together. Uh, it's pretty momentous, I think, to be able to run a podcast as your life's work in a full-time business for 15 years. So as we approach the end of this year, let me say to everybody that's ever supported me along the way, Thank you so much for doing so. Before I start answering the start questions, I'm going to go just one more time and look for anything in all caps. And I will, yep, that's what I got. And I'll come back here and I'll answer these best I can. Uh, oh, this is the guy that wants me to debate uh, Flat Earth on a neutral platform. Yeah, I know it's kind of hard, hard on the guy earlier when I talked about this, but I mean, I agreed to third-party moderator uh, how long each side got for introductions at eight minutes. Uh, each side submitting five questions that they could choose. The moderator would then ask uh, and, and, and going back and forth with who goes first and limited time rebuttal. And if you interrupted your opponent, you got muted. Like it's, it's, it's like international recognized international rules of academic debate. Uh, then a, and a four minute close a time for cross-examination by each side, each side got X and I had it all set up. And the guy said, you will not, you will not make me submit anything to you. So he ran away. I don't know. And I put time into it. I had a uh, PowerPoint for my open done. Uh, I actually dug into all the crazy claims and I was willing to do it because I thought it might be entertaining. And it just ended up was a time waste. And so if you want to debate somebody about flat earth, go find professor Dave and, and debate him. I don't have time for it. Uh, worms. Where did you get and which type? I don't remember the name of the company. Um, let me real quick while I'm answering this search for worms for sale. I probably can find it. And I'll be able to tell you what the name of the company is. It's not Mr. Jim's. Mr. Jim's is way overpriced. Uh, but I just got night crawlers because that's what does best outdoors through my winters. Um, Brothers Worm Farm new. Um, might have been Speedy Worm. I think it was speed. It was either Speedy Worm or uh, Midwest Worms. Was whoever had worms in stock in the best price, and I just bought a thousand eye crawlers and threw them in. Uh, John says Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. What's that? So you can look up Johnson Sioux Bioreactor, and I think it's SU, not SUE. Uh, and it's out of uh, some university in Johnson Sioux, 
And the people would actually build these bioreactors. And basically, it's a way of composting and you never turn anything. And the way that they do that, they build these giant round cages out of rebar. They wrap them with weed blocker. They put them up on a pallet. And then they it, it's it's laborious, but you only do it once. And I was like, that's a lot of work. So the way I do it, and I will be recording it when I do it, I might even do a work with Jack weekend. Like, and this will be like a two-hour project with five or six people if we do it, where people come over and I, I feed you booze and food and we do one little project and hang out for a little bit on the back porch that be for locals. Uh, I might do it that way so that we can, uh, you know, maybe get, do a little bit better job of documenting it. But basically, all I do is take all the material from my compost pit, which is just all the scrap waste shit that we throw there for the birds to dig through all year round, a little bit of leftover compost, and all the stuff in my deep litter in my duck house, which is basically straw wood chips. And I make layers. And each and I take, make about a six-foot round, three-foot high piece of goat fence, right? So, so small enough that everything kind of stays in. And um, I put, you know four or five inches in. And then I take out of the duck compost pit, a shovel full and make just sift it around. So it's layered and there's plenty of duck poop in the straw and the wood chips. And then I soak it. I mean, absolutely soaked. Johnson Sue does his like in tubs and they soak the tub and they dump them in one. I ain't doing that. And then I put another layer and I soak it another layer and I soak it. Once it gets up pretty high, I actually step over and I walk on it. And I push it down with my body weight. And I do that till it's almost full. But when I'm building it, I take four pieces of four-inch pipe and I put them in it so that airflow can come through there. Those pipes, they only stay in there for a couple weeks and then you can pull them out and the hole will stay open. Now, what I didn't do, I didn't put mine on a pallet this year. I will because I think it will make it work a little bit better, but I really didn't need to. But I got pallets around, so no big deal. And I didn't wrap it in a weed blocker. I have plenty of extra weed blocker from that project, so I will. And I didn't cover the top with weed blocker. Because I didn't do that, my outside didn't compost. So I had it looked like it wasn't even compost. It looked like straw, but just you know, an inch deep inside it. It made the best compost I've ever seen. It didn't look exactly like the Johnson Sioux people make. It wasn't as clay-like when wet, but it was clay-like when wet. When it's dry or just moist, it crumbles beautifully. When you soak it, you can make a ball out of it, and it almost acts like a clay. The biological activity in it is insane. The amount of fungal activity in it, beneficial fungal, is insane. It is the easiest compost I have ever made in my life. Uh, I used it all year. I would have a plant that looked a little bit diseased even in this bad year. I'd get a little ball of it, make a little, you know, wet it down, make a little marble out of it pull back around the roots, pop that in there, and, and the plant would just turn around. And it has just been uh, fantastic and easy. And, you know, I end up making a couple yards of compost that way every year, and I don't ever turn it. I shovel it one time into the, the bin, and then I shovel it when I apply it. That's it. Um, more on that, I'm sure, will come in the future. Um, hanging laundry, would it be doable to plant squash out in the field by just mulching each plant separately? Thanks. Yeah, and it depends on how much rain you get, right? You, when you put a plant, that's the other thing, you put it out in the field. So you take this plant that's out in the field, and there's no other plants around it. It's kind of a target for squash vine borers and squash bugs then. But commercial squash operations, if you guys deal with borers and bugs, they tend not to have a lot of problems, 
Because when you plant a ton of squash, the bugs and the borers just aren't a big problem. It's when we plant a few. So the more you plant, the better. Um, but I want to say something about planting something and mulching around it. And then if it's not that big of an area you've mulched, the mulch doesn't do as much good as you would think it would do because osmosis. And what I mean by that is water will move when it's an absorbable material from a wet area to a dry area. And so what happens is you're watering that spot and you're mulched around that spot and all the dry earth around it just keeps pulling your water away. And a real easy way to understand this is take, take a sponge and get it absolutely sopping wet and set it in a dish. Take a dry sponge and set it on top of the first wet sponge and come back in a couple hours. And the two sponges won't be exactly the same, but they'll almost be the same amount wet. The one sponge will pull water from the other sponge. And I, I said osmosis. It's, a, it's very osmotic-like. It's not actually osmosis. Uh, but it is moving from an area of greater concentration to an area of lesser concentration seeking equilibrium. So that that's what's going on there. And that's why that will always be a limited strategy. Um, Jason, Jack, have you ever grown or considered growing uh, chitlapin peppers? Those are a little like the bird's eye ones or whatever. Uh, I have grown some of the little marble ones that, that, that uh, Thomas Jefferson grew. They did okay. I, 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 they're really hot though. Uh, I'm more of a, a guy that likes a spicy pepper that you can actually eat, uh, not just a pepper for spice. So I like jalapenos. I like uh, hatch green chilies. I like uh, anchos. I like things like, I like Fresnos. Those, those are the ones I usually grow as a chili pepper. Um, K-Bonk, is there a keto number for the python? Uh, so the python beans, I don't know what their nutritional information is. Because when you go out on that ledge of ancestral vegetable, there's not a lot of information available. And if you found it, it would probably be the case that somebody tested it in 1935 and it has no relevance to reality. However, looking at what it is, I would treat it like a green bean uh, if you were eating the outer skin. Now, if you were eating the pulp, I don't know what the carb content is, the stuff that looks like tomato paste. I, I, but I don't have to know. I can tell you by the amount of sugar in it from taste that that would not be keto. But the outer sleeve, I mean, you're not going to sit down and eat a giant bowl of it as a you know, handful size side. I would treat that like, you know, young green beans or Asian long bean or Scarlet Runner or something like that on your carb count. That's what I do. And I don't think, you know, I'm not going to eat it every day. So it's, it's not enough to mess things up. Hunter says, why don't you do bees? Because I don't need one more thing to do, dude. Every week, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm not picking on you, Hunter. Uh, just like what? I did bees. And what I discovered is I don't like taking care of bees. So if I was willing to be what Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, would call a bee haver versus a beekeeper, which is you're a shitty beekeeper, and you don't really take care of your bees, you don't inspect your bees every month, you don't really make sure that you're feeding your bees constantly, you're not always checking them out, you just kind of leave them there, and then, you know, once a year, hopefully everybody made it, and you throw a super on and you take some honey. Then I, I could probably do bees. But I don't, having learned from Jason, who was my bee mentor, and from Michael both, about the right way to care for bees, I just decided I don't like bees for me. I would love to have a bee man. 
So what I mean by that is we have a swimming pool. I don't vacuum swimming pools. I don't skim swimming pools. I don't test chemicals in swimming pools. I don't jack around with swimming pools. I don't care if we have a swimming pool. But my wife wanted a swimming pool. So I enjoy the pool, but it's not real important to me that I have a pool. But I like having a pool. So my deal with my wife is if you will make sure that you keep somebody gainfully employed as our pool service man or pool service woman, I don't care, that takes care of the pool and I don't have to do anything, then we can put a pool in and I'm happy to pay the bill every month for the pool, for the pool service. I would love, and I, I don't know why nobody's doing this. I would love to have a B-man that comes, I don't know, every two weeks, every three weeks, every month, whatever a B-man says needs to happen. You buy the hives, you buy the bees, they come and check them, they do the honey extraction, whatever, and you pay a fee. And it, it, here's what I mean by that, too. Everything that comes out of those hives is mine, right? Now, if I want to give some of it back to the guy or whatever, charge me a fair market rate for your labor to come however long you have to come per visit to do the work, and I will pay you. And if I had that, I would have probably 10 hives on this property just to have the bees here and have them being part of the ecosystem. I don't want to do the work. so that's And, and that's why I am more and more doing less and less. Hunter also says, did you get the bobcat? He stopped coming around. And I don't have like a vendetta. This isn't like the coyote from a few years ago that was a real problem that was killing neighbors' dogs, neighbors' cats. It had sarcoptic mange. It was basically what we call it here in Texas, a chupacabra. Um, it was going insane. It was it was killing all the time. It was killing multiple. This was an animal that was just taking an animal and leaving. And if he kept doing it, he was going to turn into a pelt. Um, the last time we saw him was about five weeks ago. Haven't had any more losses, so it looks like he moved on. So since he moved on, he doesn't get a lead pill. If he comes back, he gets a lead pill. That's how that's going to work out. Um, Josh says, what do you think about the fact that it's currently warming in uh, the Northwestern Territories than in Idaho? I don't care. It's called weather. I, I I, I don't ascribe a lot of things to a lot of this stuff. We get different weather patterns. We get different movements of things like the jet stream. When the jet stream is really radical in its movements, we get a lot more storms here in Texas. When it flattens out, we get a lot less. We have a lot less tornadoes and a lot less rain at the same time. Um, I think people are ascribing way too much to things. Um, Our climate as a whole for a couple hundred years has been dramatically stable. What I'm calling a drought in Texas is regional. It affects me, and it sucks. But if you look at climate and temperature and rainfall, storm count, everything over hundreds of years, it's dramatically stable relative to the history of the planet. And because of that, human beings have come to have their special little snowflake feeling that if this year it rains more, that means something's wrong. If this means it rains less, that means something's wrong. If it's hotter than I think is typical, it, which might mean one degree, that that's there's something wrong. It's a, a cooler, there's something wrong. Like we have this idea that the climate is supposed to be like the thermostat in our freaking house. Like I should be able to go back every year to the day, and I should pretty much have the same day on you know September 5th that I have every September 5th. That ain't how it's ever worked. So I, I don't get all wrapped up in some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I do think there's something to the grand solar minimum. 
How big of an impact that's really going to have, though, yet remains to be seen. Uh, that's probably the biggest climatic impact that I have any concern about at all over the next 20 years. Just, just honestly, like I'm more concerned about the acute flare up of a tornadic storm in my backyard than I am about climate change globally. Regional climate change, different thing. Climate change due to things like desertification and deforestation and stuff like that, totally different situation as well. Screwing up our ecosystem, reducing our diversity, spraying poisons. That's the stuff I'm concerned about, not the macro view. Uh, well, the planet's warming or cooling. Uh, check out the global surface temperature on Mars if you're going to worry about that. What are the best ways to raise quail outside Zone 9B? Uh, currently running inside but have space for outdoor now. Philippe, uh, your biggest thing in 9B would make sure not too hot. So you're going to want to have shade and some sort of uh, fan system running. I've seen really hot quail. It's not pretty when they start panting and things like that. So uh, if you keep their air moving around them, and I would employ some of the strategies in the hotter parts of the year that people with rabbits do. I've always had great results with my birds um, by just getting one-gallon jugs or half-gallon jugs or two-liter bottles that we keep frozen in the freezer. We just stick them in there, and like the chickens just stick their ass up against them and stuff like that. That seems to really help. The If you're going to move to outside with quail, the bigger the area, like an aviary that you're keeping in, in the better because they can thermoregulate. When we start putting animals in small cages or tractors in hot climates or cold climates where they can't find sun, etc., and they can't move around, we have to really stay in touch with what's going on with them because they can go from okay to stressed to dead in mere hours. Where if they had the ability to move, they would be fine. It gets very hot here. My chickens, my ducks, my geese, sometimes they don't look happy, but they're okay because they can find a place. Quail don't really work in a free-range environment. So I would look towards having some method where they can cool down uh, and an aviary. And one thing that might work, and I've never really thought of doing before, but if you, I, I guarantee if you gave quail kind of an underground burrow chamber that they could go into, they'd use that shit. They would, they're not dumb. They figured out the problem you would have is they would also lay eggs down there. Right. And, it, and if you're not in total predator security, you know, you're getting like a gopher snake or something down there and it's going to start wiping them out. So cooling is going to be your main thing to look for and making sure they can move around. What are some good things to plant for quail? Mostly cucumbers. Uh, from Philippe as well. Uh, quail, oh, I'm just going to say that they are so inexpensive to feed, you're better off just feeding them a good quality feed. What can you grow for them? They'll eat just about any kind of seed. Um, they they really like black soldier fly. Just it's so high protein fat, you can only feed so much of them. Uh, Japanese proso millet, uh, I grew a bunch of that, and they really liked that. I would just take it with a rice knife, pick the heads off, and throw it in the aviary. They would eat the hell out of that. I don't have a lot of experience with that one, honestly. Um, they do like uh, – they love uh, microgreen remnants. So if you grow microgreens uh, after you've harvested, you can just put the whole tray in there, and they will wipe out. They'll eat the roots, the stems that are left behind. They'll go through the dirt. They'll find stuff to eat in that. Uh, they also love sunflower sprouts. So I, I haven't done it much lately, but I, I usually use five-gallon buckets with holes drilled in them, and I make like a you know, big scoop of sunflower seeds soaked in a bucket overnight. Then they go to the one with holes that get rinsed once a day. It takes about five or six days till you get basically sunflower sprouts, and I feed those to the ducks. Not all, when I had the quill, I would throw those. 
those worked really well for them too. They, you could tell that they really appreciated them uh, and they liked them. Uh, jo- John Peterson, Jack, what is your, what is that you're drinking bourbon? Uh, no, it's actually a little bit, I'll admit it this early in the day of Chardonnay. I had a little bitty bit in the bottom of a Chardonnay bottle. And I thought since this is my last live stream of the week, it'd be kind of fitting to have a little bit of a adult beverage uh, as we go through and do this today. Joe said, did you get a deer for the season? No, I have not been hunting this year. I don't think I'm going to get any time to go hunting this year. And I drove past many highly illegal, but I'll totally pick them up deer dead on the road that would have been great deer to pick up this year. And the reason was leading up to our workshop, we stacked the freezer with pre-cooked food for the workshop. Freezers. I have two stand-up freezers, a chest freezer, and two normal freezers plus a normal freezer in the house. And we were full up. And so I had no plate. Now I got a lot of room now. And, but this is a problem. We, I can pick up really great roadkill deer, even though again, it's illegal. I don't care. The cops don't care. So I don't care. Um, here around my area, but the rut peaks about a week before the workshop or like ends about a week from the, before the workshop and they just stop getting hit. And so it's like four or five weeks leading up to the workshop. There's a dead deer every day and probably other every other deer has been hit in a way that it's worth salvaging uh so i did not pick up any deer meat plus you know with butcher box and what we produce ourselves and all i am not in really need uh, of meat much at all uh cavalry 1808 farm says coon hogs i don't know what a coon coon hog is or is it cooney 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 is that what that is it, it, so maybe he's talking about guinea pigs you want to grow guinea pigs and eat them, go ahead. I would definitely try them. I don't think it's worth the effort myself here. Uh, there's so many things that I can grow that are more productive, that have more meat on them, that I don't have to kill cute little guinea pigs to have. Right? i just going to say that. Packrat says, do you have any concern about your drip irrigation, PVC being UM embrittled, uh, being roughly the same price as irrigation hardline? It's all put under the mulch, therefore sun shield. So it will be mulched, um, but I don't because I have enough scrap PVC from old projects laying around to prove out that it works without buying anything except the fittings. And if you don't glue it, the fittings are reusable. I would indeed possibly consider a different material if I didn't already have the PVC the other thing you might consider is using the UV-stabilized gray, uh, basically electrical conduit. I know some people have done that. But I have it already. It's already paid for. It's already written off from all that go. So that's why I'm using that. Uh, Sabi Chick says, what is a good machine for constant live streaming? I teach a lot of music lessons online. I know it's not guarding, but it sounds like you've got a lot of experience with different computers. So I live stream with a MacBook, and I have no problems. So... I don't have a lot of experience. Uh, I use a MacBook Air, and uh, that's it. It's StreamYard. So I, I I really don't have another answer for you on that one. Maybe somebody else in the live stream might, uh, but I really appreciate you guys uh, hanging out with us today. Uh, Survivalizer says, come on, was that a fig tree I saw on the property when I was there? Probably so. Uh, we have several fig trees. We have uh, some LSU purples 
some brown turkeys, and we have one. You, if you're talking about the one right outside of the shop, little one, that's called a white fig. And that's no no name other than the name the guy that made it for me called it. They said they had one his his grandpa planted 75 years ago uh, on their homestead, and he took a cutting and made that. And that tree ha- produces every year, and it freezes to the ground every year, and it makes a handful of figs every year, and they're freaking delicious. They're not white. They're more like a light green when they're ripe. Um, they're kind of like a cream color on the inside, though, and they're absolutely delicious. Anyway, with that, guys, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, yeah, Humble Mechanic has a lot of experience streaming as well. He's a simple way. It's just about any modern laptop for a live stream. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't think that streaming is as difficult as people make it out to be. Uh, Cavalry said, did I say that potbelly pigs were delicious? Yes, I did. The potbelly pig is actually a pig that was bred as a meat pig. They are not designed to be pets that yuppies keep. And by the way, the micro mini teacup pigs, there's no such thing. It's a lie. It's a starved pig. Uh, all of them get much larger than people think. The potbelly pig was developed in Vietnam, and it was a pig that was designed. They let them roam free. They come home every night, and when they're hungry, they kill one. The thing about them is they're delicious pork, but much like uh, guinea hogs, and they don't get as big as guinea hogs, uh, certainly in the same period of time. And guinea hogs were already take a lot longer to get full, fully mature uh, out than you know pink pigs or other heritage breed pigs. Um, there are a lot of fat on them. They're a lot they're like half lard, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I ate a potbelly pig and I would eat them again. And I, I would have no qualms with somebody that used potbelly pig as a meat animal. It wouldn't be a maximum yield animal. It is like the American guinea hog. Different, it's the same but different man in that it is a delicious, delicious form of pork. And again, you know, you're talking an animal that will get well over 100 pounds and you probably get 40 pounds of lard off of it. And that's not a negative in my opinion at all. That, that's and the other thing I, I think people should be maybe encouraged to play around with a little bit when you have a pig with a lot of fat content like that you cube that fat up fairly big cubes and cut little hash marks in it and fry it it's freaking just del- you fry it not till it's like rendered down the lard you fry it till it just begins to crisp on the outside and it's nice and soft I, I can't believe that in my life as a kid, I used to believe that it made sense to cut fat off meat. I'll just say that. It's some of the most amazing, amazing fat that I've ever had. Probably the best tasting pork I've ever eaten in my life. And I've had like, you know, the Iberico de la Volta from friggin' Spain is American guinea hogs finished on acorns. Um, Mike, I don't think he was here today, but Mike, who goes way back with us, uh, Vertries, uh, he always told me how good it was. And the first time I ever ate one, I'm like, okay, you're right. I'm like, I hate them because you can't make money with them. But as a homestead pig, they're, they're amazing. Anyway, with that, guys, I will wrap up. want to remind you guys, you can help support the show by doing your online shopping. Where? You guys know where. tspaz.com. Got an item of the day for you today. It's kind of a price alert and an item of the day at the same time. It is the WEN 2000-watt inverter generator. WEN, W-E-N, not W-H-E-N like WEN, but WEN. Like WEN Bitcoin, WEN 2000-watt inverter generator. 
It is on sale for $350. Um, it also is one that can come, you can get a parallel kit for it and run two of them. Uh, this is the 56200i. Again, it's on sale for about $350. And what I said when I put this out today was, uh, I wish I had less backup power options for the coming winter. As a quote, nobody ever. That's who said that. Nobody ever said I wish I had back. So this is a this is not a primary uh, generator, in my opinion. It's a lower end and it's a lower wattage generator. It definitely doesn't replace something like a, a Honda e, 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 EU2000 uh, from a standpoint of reliability. But I know a lot of people that own this generator, uh, very, very happy with it. It is a quiet generator. It works. And to me, it's a great second generator. I don't have one because I have multiple generators and I don't need another, like, you know, five keeps you a live generator. The price on this, if I only had one generator, I would buy at least one as a, as a backup. And these smaller generators like this are what I use for, like, if the power goes out, I got to keep my fish alive in all my ponds uh, out remote. And I use a larger, I have a 7,500 watt Troy bolt that I use to, to power stuff in the house. But I would definitely take a look at this if you haven't done so already and uh, consider adding it to your preparedness uh, stack. And remember, winter is coming. It always does. And when power goes out in the winter, it's just a, a different kind of misery. But you guys can always support this show. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And MSB, I'm going to say something about MSB. Don't join the MSB this week. I'm going to have a sale press next week. It's not going to be like a super-duper sale, but if you're not an MSB member already, wait till next week. I'm going to roll out a sale. Instead of doing a you know a, a Black Friday sale or something like that, uh, Monday next week I'll roll out a sale, and I will, uh, I'll do a good deal for you on MSB. So hold off on that till next week. I'm honest enough to tell you that. I wasn't going to do it, but then I thought about it and decided, hey, it's Christmas. Why not? With that, guys, I'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, well, I'll catch you on Monday with a new episode. Tomorrow, Chef Keith on cooking a great Thanksgiving and Wednesday the Thanksgiving special.